Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Recording Lounge podcast. This is part two of our interview with John Cunaberti, who is an amazing engineer with a long career full of great stories. So stay tuned. The interview is about to start. He gets drunk reading the Bible. She gets high sniffing cocaine. We all got a religion. It don't have to look the same We could build a wall between us You could build a Chevrolet You could be a saint Never catch a break You could work outside in the rain But I'm getting so damn tired Waiting on payday My cash is gone So now in 2017, you've got this project that's, you know, incredibly cool, the One Mic Project. Yeah. And it's so incredibly different of a mindset and approach than working on a record like Joe's. Certainly, yeah. So how, tell me a bit about this and, and how you got into the One Mic Project and what what caused your brain to say like, man, I really just want to try this. Well, I think it's combination of a number of things. Um one is just the pure frustration of seeing the way records are being made now. Hmm. And that's not to say that great records are not being made. Of course they are. I, I hear wonderful, amazing pieces of music all the time, and they're being done by many different methods. So right. uh, kudos to them. You know, I, th- I think the end always will justify the means when it comes to the recording arts. I don't care how you get there, and I'm not going to get all judgy about how long it took you to do it. However, I have come to the conclusion that recording artists and musicians in particular, they sell themselves short now um, because they rely too much on other people to produce their art. Right. A band now who shows up to a recording studio is going to, uh, this is, I'm speaking in general, and there's always going to be exceptions to this. A band now will generally go to a recording studio and, and a recording engineer will always close mic everything. And then if they're really trying to make a record that's perfect, then they're going to probably do a lot of overdubs and spent a lot of time perfecting this record right? without ever really having the opportunity to do it any other way. It's just the way records are made now. Sure. We get the drums, then we chop them to the grid, and then we have the bass player come in, and he plays to that perfect drum track, and then we bring in the guitars, and then we bring in the keyboards, and then once all that is done and edited and perfect and in time and in pitch, then the singer comes in, and they sing the song 20 times, we cop it, and then we apply auto-tune to it, and now we have a record that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that is a common standard mode of operation now for a lot of people who are being exposed to recording for the first time. Right. And I'm thinking, wow, you guys will never have an opportunity to really express your art in a real natural way without this 
conduit of people, producers and engineers and mastering engineers and mixing engineers and record companies and all these people that are between you and the audience right. that get involved in your music and in your art. And I, I work with bands all the time who will tell me, yeah, we're not too happy with our last record. It took forever. We're not happy with the mixes. And, you know, they're just kind of let down by the whole digital revolution right. and the endless possibilities and the 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 continuous putting off decision making or or worse leaving it up to somebody else right well you know the like a lot of these bands they would never consider mixing the record themselves that's just something somebody else does right you know they turn it all over to somebody so getting back to your question to why i sort of went down this other road i noticed that a lot of the records i made Early on, the first 20 years of my career, I actually, in a lot of ways, prefer, hmm. and you'll hear this from a lot of guys my age and a lot of people who, who are paying attention, that there was something about the way those records are being made because people are all in a room together playing at the same time. They're having a conversation that affects the outcome uh, musically, and over the years, because of the technology that came in to allow us to do more and more multi-track, multi-mic, put everything off until later thing, it's slowly crept away from that um, in, in an effort to make something perfect. And, you know, a lot of those early records I made, they're not perfect, but the experience listening to them, I'm not upset or affected by the mistakes I'm not listening to the mistakes. I'm just listening to the the interaction of those musicians in a room playing together and producing a piece of art that's only going to happen once right. ever. And it just happened to be captured. And it's real. You know, it's an actual... Yeah, by, but, but, yeah, it just happened to be captured by an engineer who happened to know what he was doing. And then the mixing of those records was, was fairly quickly. I mean, for the first 20 years, the records I made... I would never spend more than two weeks on. Right. And I'm working with bands now, they can't even cut two songs in two weeks. Right. You know, because they, they're waiting around to, you know, give it to somebody to mix. Right. <laughs> like, well, why don't you mix it? I mean, it's your art, you know? So I don't know. I, I kind of decided that maybe I wanted to kind of look back and think about what has been taken away rather than what's been added. Right. The technology has added so much and it's gotten so confusing and it's taken the focus off of what I believe is important. Right. Um, and that is performance, um, songwriting certainly. Sure. Performance and the interaction of musicians playing together in a room together. Right. You know, and hearing each other and playing off of each other. Well, and you could even argue that the the way that we make records now, you know, because the clients and the musicians and the artists, because they know how it's made now, they 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 get lazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they they know ahead of time. Ah, well, that take wasn't great, but just tune it. You know what I mean? Like they don't even exactly because they already know that's what you can do. 
Um, you know, and, and also back then in say 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, it was such a, you, you couldn't, because of what we talked about earlier, you couldn't just go to Guitar Center and get a thing. It was like, when you were in the studio, like it was special and it was like, all right, guys, we got to like, we can't waste time. Like, this is really expensive. We got to just play it really well. You know what I mean? Like, that's right. That, that was the focus. And they, they were like really focused on getting good emotional performances. Right. Um, what's really interesting about this too, is I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently about vibe. Okay. And that's a term that obviously gets thrown around a lot. Vibe, vibe. Oh, that's vibey. Oh, that's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and we were, uh, so this friend of mine is not an audio engineer and he's not even a musician, but he's sort of a, you know, an audiophile guy, likes music a lot. And uh, he's an English teacher. And I asked him, I was like, so, so where does vibe come from for you? Like when you listen to a record and an example that we were talking about was Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, you know, that was done in his kitchen or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh. I was like, so you would say that record's vibey. Well, what's what's so vibey about it, you know? And uh, we were talking back and forth, and my question to him was, okay, so if if Nebraska is vibey, is it suddenly not vibey when he plays that live? Is the mediocre quality of the recording what really makes it vibey? Because my argument would be that vibe, like 80% of vibe comes from the artist, the performance, the song, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, the way that a singer's voice sounds, just that has so much to do with the way that you hear a song. Right. You know, and um, there are certain songwriters that, the, the ex other example I used for him is that, um, you know, imagine Kurt Cobain sang on a folk record in the 70s. You know, it, 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 it doesn't even fit, like, in your mind, yeah. you know? Uh, whereas if you had a folky, like a John Denver singing on a rock record today, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't translate. And there's something about just the uniqueness of a singer's voice or a certain guitar sound or something that us engineers, we can't change anything about that. Right. You know, right. The, mm -hmm. that we ca our jobs to capture it and try to, you know, accentuate the good parts and minimize the bad parts and... But there is a certain point where we can't make up vibe out of nowhere. You know what I mean? And well, and worse than that is that oftentimes when pe people hear vibe and call it a mistake, and right. they start focusing on the mistakes. And this is when you start getting into uh, editing and auto-tuning. Right. People are listening for mistakes. They're not listening for... The magic, right? You know, put the band out there. In other words, a lot of bands go in and they start messing around trying to make a record, and then six months later, the record's done, but no one's happy. Right. Well, what if they spent six months in a rehearsal studio trying every combination of how to play those songs together as a band until they came up with something that was just, you know, incredible, right, <laughs> and, and wonderful. And then go into a studio for three days and cut it. Right. I mean, that's how the Kinks made records. That's how Jimi Hendrix made records, at least the early ones. I mean, that's how the Who made their early records. Certainly, that's how the Beatles made their first four or five records. I mean, so so the, the, they they could do it. Why can't you? 
Well, you can't because you've been told you can't. Right. You've been told you have to go to a studio and multi-track the whole damn thing and then and then start looking for mistakes and fixing all those mistakes and then overdubbing all those things until you can fix everything. Right. <laughs> and then you're going to give it to this guy and he's going to mix it and you're supposed to like it. And here's the bill. Yeah. I mean, that on the surface is a plan for disaster. Right. I mean, that's just never going to work. So many moving parts of that, it's bound to fail, you know, at least a handful of times. Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, it's interesting that you that you bring that up because I've, I've thought about that many, many times. And I've thought to myself, you know, a recording doesn't have to be just a, a capturing of an event. You know, like it doesn't have to be that. Like it can be right. accentuated and sort of hyper real and sort of like mm-hmm. your own little environment, right? Like uh, as I like how Michael Brower said it once that... You know, you don't have to make a mix or a recording that's just a capturing an event. You can make an event. You know what I mean? Like, right. it is the event, right? Yes. Like, you don't have to just be like, ah, this is a pure, real recording of a thing. However, there is a certain part where you can, like anything, you can take that way too far. Well, uh, you know, I made those records. I mean, right. uh, Surfing with the Alien, which is probably Joe's still most famous record anyway, was all done one track at a time. But it was done by somebody who was immensely talented and and was immensely sensitive to everything he did and the interaction of those parts and and the workings of those parts. So if he took a cassette home that night after some overdubs and he listened to it and it didn't feel right to him, we came back the next day and tried again. Right. And we did it over and over and over again until it felt right to him, until it was the expression of art for him. Now, that's very different than bringing a band in where you have a bass player phoning his parts in because, well, it doesn't matter because next Thursday I'm booked to come in and do and redo all my bass parts. Right. And... I would say to him, well, how you phoning it in today is going to affect that drummer over there in the corner who's listening to you. Right. And what effect is that going to have on, like you say, the vibe of the record? Well, I would argue it's going to have a huge effect. Sure. And that if that drummer is not playing to your bass part, then the record will never be as good is it is if he had been sure so getting back to the one mic experience or <laughs> my <laughs> yeah is that nobody gets to phone it in or if you do phone it in uh that's what we're going to end up with and we're all going to know it you know in a few hours and it was interesting you know i did 10 i did 10 artists uh they all did two songs each some did a couple more than two songs and I would say all of them, without exception, were a little intimidated by the process because they knew that they really had to be good. Sure. Because if, you know, <laughs> go figure, if they right? weren't good, it wasn't going to work. Yeah. And, and, the, and as I started collecting the recordings and the videos and they were seeing them, they were realizing, wow, the bar is set pretty high. Those guys are pretty good. Right. So we're going to have to, you know, schedule some extra rehearsals this week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where if it was a multi-mic, multi-track, 
recording, maybe they wouldn't. Mm. You know, maybe they know that, you know, if I play a shitty fill coming out of that bridge, we can just grab it from take three. Yeah. You know, and throw it in there. So, you know, let's let's go have a beer, not worry about it. Right. But but what I did was I kind of um created an environment where they had to be the best they could possibly be and then live with the results. Right. Now, I t- told them all in advance that if they didn't like the result, I would not use it. Mm. It was something I had to give them because there were some artists that were not sure if they could pull it off. Right. And so I felt that I had to respect their artistic integrity and allow them to have first refusal. Hmm. There, fortunately, no one called me on that, and I used pretty much everything. One of the one of the bands came back and redid it hmm. and got it right the next time. So, gotcha. Yeah. So there was only really one complete failure. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Um... What's the biggest thing that you learned in the process of doing that? The goal, really, in the in the beginning, was it was a um, an engineering experience. Sure, you know, experiment, an engineering experiment, I should say, where I wanted to know if it could even be done. I wanted to know if I could put a band with electric guitars, singers, and drums in a room around a stereo microphone and make a, a convincing enough recording that could rival a multi-track, multi-mic, you know, conventional recording. Right. I wanted to know if it could even be done. Yeah, or if we're <laughs> just doomed to, we have to make records the other way. <laughs> yeah. I, and I never I never thought, and I still don't think that this is some sort of replacement for multi-track, multi-mic sure. recording. I think that will continue. I will continue to do that. You know, I'm okay with that, but I just wanted to know if it could be done. Right. So when I found the right microphone that allowed me to have the two stereo fields in the front and the back of the microphone, which is, of course, the AEA R88 right. ribbon microphone. One of my favorite mics. Yeah, it, it, it allowed for me to set up a band in front of the mic and in the back of the mic and creating a stereo field, right. two stereo fields to work in opposed to a conventional stereo microphone that's just going to give you one stereo field in the front, left and right. Right. I thought having the, the added benefit of what the, what's called conventionally a bloom line array, mm-hmm. which only can happen when you have bi-directional microphones stacked on top of each other, I thought this is a real possibility that I can do this. Sure. So one of the bands I was working with in a conventional way, I asked them, I said, would you guys want to come into a studio for four or five hours and do this experiment with me? And they said, fine. And they came in and I just started, just I just jumped right in. I said, well, let's put the singer here. Let's put the guitar amps there. Let's spread them out, create physical panning with the amplifiers. And sure. I figured, well, the bass wants to be in the center. So I'll put it over here. In the middle, the drums, which are always going to be a problem right. um, because they're loud. I'm going to have to move them in and out. And we, I just kept fooling with it and fooling with it until I got to a point where I could stand in the control room between the two speakers and go, you know what? This actually sounds good. Right. I mean, this is actually working. Right. I mean, I actually like it. 
I mean, it's kind of convincing. My experiment actually... Not just, yeah, not just passable. Yeah. And I was willing to, at that point to probably just say, okay, that was cool and not think another thing of it. But the band kept coming to me and saying, man, we love this, man. This sounds so cool. We, you know, maybe we could do a whole album like this. They were getting <laughs> off on it. And I suddenly I realized something that had that I hadn't really paid any attention to was the band was owning this recording. Right. You know, it was them. It was them balancing themselves. It was them 100%. It was their performance. There was no producer. There was no engineer in the, in the you know, classic sense. Right. Where, okay, guys, I want you all to go home and I'm going to mix this now. Right. Or let me try a different microphone on that guitar amp. Or I'm going to add some reverb to that later. Right. <laughs> you know, there was none of that. It's about as pure as it gets, like purest as purest gets. <laughs> it is. The, the recording that they were hearing in their headphones during the time that they were performing it is exactly what you hear now in those videos. Right. So they were owning this recording and they were so proud of it. Hmm. And this was the experience time after time after time with each one of these bands that came in and did this with me is that they owned it and they loved it. Now, that doesn't mean they're, they're the next time they go make an album, they're going to do it that way. Sure. But they own it and they love it. And it's they they see it as a precious piece of art and they're glad they did it. Right. And that was a surprise to me. I assumed and I just figured they were, were going to say, yeah, it's pretty good, but I don't know, man. It'd be Can we just like plug my bass in direct? Hmm. You know, right. it's not a mic. <laughs> or can we, I don't know, if I could overdub my mandolin during the bridge, it would be better. Right. You know, but nobody said that. Interesting. They just heard it for what it was. They heard the recording. They loved their performances. I always pick good songs. So, you know, I, I would say to them, give me your best songs. I don't want your new songs. Sure. I just want your best songs. <laughs> yeah. Because people are going to hear and see you guys for the first time. So let's just give them your best stuff. What's interesting about that, too, is that, you know, me and some engineer friends have talked about this same conundrum that the more options you have, uh, whether it's like you said, like, oh, maybe we should try my bass direct or whatever, you know, for every one simple solution like that, it introduces four problems. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, right. you could say, oh, well, I want to hear my bass better. Okay, well, let's, you know, take a DI well, then now that we hear it better, it's like, well, now it sounds a little bit, you know, mid-rangey. Maybe we should use an amp also, you know? <laughs> and then, mm -hmm. uh, well, now it's not, now I can really hear it well. Now I realize that it's not perfect and let's edit it. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. Like it introduces so many more things. And then, of course, you end up down the rabbit hole of, well, now that we've got the really good bass, let's just go ahead and overdub drums too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it, it it is the Pandora's box. It's the rabbit hole. Call it whatever you want. Right. But it's it's never ending, and that's why a record can take a year, and then the band hates it when it's done. Because right. too many people are involved. Too many people are making decisions. Nobody has an overall objective feel for it. When I got done, when they played the song from beginning to end, I said, I'm not doing comps. You're going to do it from beginning to end. I'm going to play it back for you. They would just stay out there with their headphones on, the ones that had headphones. Some some of the artists didn't even wear headphones. Hmm. Um, they just did it with the, the, the sound in the room. Um, they, you know, once they listened to it, they'd go, wow, 
you know, great, or let's try it one more time. You know, I didn't quite get it right. I think the, the most takes I think I ever did on any of the 10 artists was seven or eight, I think eight. Hmm. I think we have a take eight on, on, on one of the artists that was working on a song that was fairly new and that some of the musicians were pickup musicians. So it took a little longer than the rest of them. But, but man, I'm telling you, most of them, like the Jackie Green um, one that's up now, hmm. um, that's first take. Wow. <laughs> that's the band going in, setting up, putting the headphones on, kind of getting, they, they jammed for about five minutes on a couple of other songs just to get a feel and just so I could get a balance. Right. But then they said, okay, let's do, you know, that song. And they did it. And they, I think we did maybe three takes and we all decided that, nah, man, take one's the one. That's it. Mm. Let's just go with it. And there's no looking back. Nobody ever brought up adding anything. Nobody ever brought up remixing anything because you can't. Right. <laughs> you know, that that's that's just not an option. And they kind of dig that. They kind of like the idea. They're very proud of themselves. Man, we did that in one take. Right. You know, people are always saying, oh, yeah, man, we cut our record live. Well, that's not what I heard. <laughs> right. I heard you went back and redid all the guitars. Right. Well, yeah, we did those. But the drums are live. Yeah. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> Kind oh, of you mean the ones, the, yeah, the ones you edited, yeah. and then you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the drum performance was live, but then we edited the crap out of it. Right, it's like you uh, know? so. Yeah. A lot of people use the word live, but this stuff is live, right? <laughs> really live. So the the first one I made uh, with a band called San Geronimo, we did the two songs. I I liked it so much. I said, you know what? Let's do one more take, and I'm going to go out with my iPhone. And make a movie of it. Huh. And so I just walked around the band and made this little video walking around them why they recorded the song. Right. And I thought, I have to do this to document it for a couple of reasons, because I wanted to document the positions of everybody. And I wanted to I wanted to prove to my friends, my engineer friends, that they actually did this with with just the one with microphone. Just one. Right. Right. <laughs> I need I because what I'm hearing coming out the speakers doesn't sound like that. And somebody could, you know, accuse me of you know, pulling their leg. Right. So I made this video. So when I got home, I synced the video up to uh, the recording and I threw it online. And within, I don't know, a week or two, there was like 15,000 hits. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, watches on YouTube. And I thought, wow, people are really responding to this. Right. This is, I, I you know, I thought it was cool. The band loves it. But I, I, people, mm, so I sat down and I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to do more of these. So right. I went and I, I found a cinematographer, young guy, super talented. And I told him, I said, I want you to kind of basically do what I did with my iPhone camera, but I want you to use, you know, really high quality camera that can shoot in 4K and we'll put it right. on a, a steady cam and I want you to light it beautifully so it looks good and looks compelling and we'll do it in one take. Your performance will be one take, the band's performance will be in one take and I'll have a one take recording. Nice. And <laughs> you and I and the band together will work and and make magic. Right. <laughs> so I just started calling my friends, mostly musician friends and bands I know locally. And I started bringing them in and I just started doing these things. And then at one point, um, me and Nathaniel, the cinematographer, we went up to Oregon 
and worked in a room up there uh, with a dear friend of mine, re great recording engineer, Justin Phelps, who works out of this place called Hallowed Halls. Yeah. Uh, big, beautiful room up there. And uh, he and I picked three acts to come in. And I did three acts up there, right in the middle of January in the snow. Wow. <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I wanted to see if I could do this in another room, maybe with some other people, with some other gear, kind of change it up and and see how that worked. And it worked out beautifully. I was very proud of uh, what we did up there. So hmm. all 10 artists are available now, uh, two songs each. And there you have it. I think I proved my point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what uh, you mentioned that obviously the drums, as anyone could imagine, are a big challenge. What are, I mean, what are some of the biggest challenges with that? Obviously, you got to play with the position of everybody, I'm sure, quite a bit to get the level right. What are some of the things you had to maybe change or tweak to make it work for this uh, type of recording style? There's two, two major challenges. One is the way the room loads the drums on the mic. You know, the microphone, again, is bi-directional and it's stereo. So you're hearing two sides of the room. You're hearing the front side of the room and the back side of the room, depending on you know, the direction the microphone's pointed in. And when you hit, a, hit something like a kick drum, the room will load up and, and possibly become very right heavy or very left heavy. Right. And so early on, I realized that I had to really move the microphone around in the room and and move the drums in and out to the microphone and back away from the microphone and kind of point the kick drum in different directions to try to get the kick drum as close to dead center, which is a conventional recording, sure. as possible. And, you know, some of them are were more successful than others. Um, I don't think any of them were so bad that it was distracting. Right. But it was an interesting to, to, to you know, the, the rooms want to reflect low frequencies or actually all all frequencies somewhat uneven so if you want the snare drum dead center then you have to uh move the mic and the drum around the room so that when he hits it it is kind of in the middle right. where you would want it in a conventional recording and again what i was trying to do was to recreate a conventional recording right anybody could set up a band around a microphone and then let it just sound the way it sounds and go yeah that's the sound of the band in the room sure but that's easy. Right. And that's another reason why I never did bluegrass bands, because mm -hmm. that to me is easy. You just set up, you know, a bunch of people playing acoustic instruments, you put them in a circle around a microphone. I mean, freaking anybody can do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I wanted people to hear these recordings and go, come on, that's done with multi-channel. Right. That's a multi-mic. That stuff is panned. Right. You know, I wanted it to really sound like a regular record. Yeah. So it took, I had to move the mic and the drums around the room to get them to sound as close to a conventional recording as possible. However, of course, the drums are far from the mic and, and they are very ambient. They are very roomy and there's no way to get around that. Right. That was the, that was one problem. The other problem was the drummer themselves. If they're the kind of drummers that have only recorded with headphones in a recording studio where they could adjust their own mix or or an engineer from the control room was was sending them a mix their sense of balance is probably been compromised right in other words they don't really know how hard 
they hit that tom-tom or they really don't know how hard they're hitting that hi-hat. Right. <laughs> In fact, the old engineering trick is if the drummer's hitting the high hi-hat too hard, Put it a lot just crank it up in the guy's right. headphones. <laughs> just crank right. in his headphones, you know, and then he'll just go, oh yeah, and back off on it. Right. So um, in this case, that wasn't an option. Right. He, you know, they, you know, those drummers had to play with a great amount of sensibility. And I would say almost every one of them at first were a little, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I'm way too loud. Okay. Right. Let me try some brushes or let me try some of the blast sticks or let me try a different drum or let me try a different tuning or let me put a little bit more dampening, you know, mm. they or let me try some different cymbals. They all quickly made the adjustments necessary to produce the final result. Right. And even though probably any one of them would argue, well, that's not my best drum sound. You know, my last record, you know, my drums are kicking. Sure. Snare is freaking great. But that's not the focus of this, is it? Right. It's really to present the singer and the songwriter in this environment where the song breathes and there's this interaction of the musicians. Yeah. They appreciated that part of it and could relax and go, you know what? I'm a part of something that's pretty freaking cool. Right. Now, I've got another record where everybody can hear what an awesome snare drum sound I have. Sure. <laughs> you know, I got that. What I find fascinating is the natural separation, you know, because the drums are farther away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times engineers think about separation in terms of frequencies and in terms of, you know, where everything sits in a frequency spectrum. And, and people will think of it in terms of panning, right? As something's on the left versus something on the right. But yeah. with uh, with that sort of setup, it's very clear that separation can also be front to back. Correct. And that the drums do sound like they're behind the singer because they are. <laughs> you yeah. know, like they really are. And, you know, the singer does sound more in your face and more intimate and... The drums naturally separate in tone and in and maybe uh, I mean theoretically a little bit in time. Also, they're a little bit delayed, just slightly, yeah. just enough. And well, you'll notice that the guitar amps are also back. Right. Um, they're back about seven feet from the mic, and they're back in that area where the drums are also. Right. So, you know, there is this uh, layer of depth that takes place. Yeah. And. One of the reasons why I felt it was really important to have video of this, because I believe it's a video, a medium, uh, because I wanted to, sh- I wanted people to actually see these musicians performing this stuff live in one take. Yeah. I mean, no one would believe it. Yeah. I mean, if, if this was just audio recordings, people would say, well, I don't, you know, whatever. But the fact that you can actually see them do it, I think really emphasizes just how talented these people are. Right. And my God, they're talented. Right. I mean, I, every one of them is doing something that is very, very special. And 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 it only happened once. And it'll only happen once. And it happened then and it happened there. I mean, listen, we've all seen live performances. Sure. Concert performances, right? But you and I know that many of those live performances, we can go all the way back 30, 40 years. Once those recordings get into a recording studio, people start overdubbing, people start doing stuff, and pretty soon that thing ain't so live anymore. Right. 
All right. So I felt that I had to videotape it to prove that it was done in one take and one performance. Right. And of course, the videographer, the uh, Nathaniel, he had to do it in one take. He had to learn the songs before the band arrived. Hmm. He had we had to choreograph his movements around the band that works. I couldn't, you know, I can't have him walking between the guitar amplifier and the microphone. Right. And then there was the lighting we had to take into consideration. So it was a very complex ballet that he had to do around the artist because he had to be in the right place at the right time. Right. If there was a guitar solo, he had to, you know, be shooting that at that moment. Yes, he had to anticipate it. Right. And so he was very good about learning the material Hmm. and um, being in the right place at the right time. And we tried to create a different vibe for each band with the lighting and the, you know, some of the set direct, you know, decorations and things like that. I I told the band, if you guys want to bring stuff in to to set it up around you, to create an atmosphere that's your own, that helps support the song, please do. Right. Um, don't dress in your street clothes. Yeah. You know, if, if you're, if you were going to go, uh, you know, be on the Jimmy Kimball show tonight, what would you wear? Right. I mean, you think about what you're wearing because it's really important. Hmm. You know, this is a visual medium. Right. And, um, oh, the bands were great about it. They had a lot of fun doing this. Sure. Oh yeah. I mean, it sounds a lot, of, a lot of fun to me as an engineer. And I'm sure that, you know, bands anywhere could enjoy that sort of project because it's, it is so different than what we're used to. And, and what we've been used to for a long time. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of a recording off the top of my head that was done, you know, commercial recording that was done even close to that in a long time. Um, so yeah. so how big is um, is the live room that you're working in in most of these scenarios? Well, there's, there's just the two rooms. The 25th Street uh, Recording Studio in Oakland is where I did most of them. And... Um, it's a pretty good size room, probably, I want to say 40 by 30, pretty high ceilings. Mm. Um, and and beautifully acoustically designed. Right. It's a top-notch studio. So that was a great place for me to do some of this stuff because it, it the room just sounds great. Sure. You know, so you have to have a great sounding room. Now, when I went up to Oregon and went to Portland and w- walked into... Hallowed Halls, I went, oh, oh, this is going to be really hard. (laughs) (laughs) This room is really, really alive. Right. And I'm not sure if this is going to work, you know. And the first couple of go-arounds, I thought, oh, man. So fortunately, they had these big, huge um, gobo things that we could... Uh, move around like behind the drums, and and I moved the band down to the bo- back third of the of the of the studio, and I pointed the the microphone in a way where I could kind of reduce a lot of the ambience. Right. And ultimately, it worked out. It's a, it's very vibey, and it's very different than the um, than the Twenty Fifth Street stuff, which is a little bit more intimate, a little bit more closer, a little bit more in your face. Sure. Now on the. On your end, I mean, was there any processing at all? Um, I would just say that there was some con- conventional mastering involved. I cut everything flat uh, through a millennia mic pre at 9624. Gotcha. Right to Pro Tools. I just, I didn't want to take any chance of EQ and anything going in. Sure. Because I wasn't 100% sure 
and I and I didn't want that variable in there. Right. Um, if if I heard something in the control room that didn't sound right, I was compelled to go out in the studio and change it. Sure. Rather than trying to EQ it into the recording. Yeah, that's part of your performance, so to speak, as the engineer. Yeah. You know. Yes. Yeah. Going out and moving stuff around and 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 turning guitar amplifiers up and down. Yeah. Um, and adding effects. If if the guitar needed a little reverb, we added reverb to the guitar amplifier because that's the only way we were going to get it. Um, one of the other things I did in the mastering process was I did add some reverb some of the time, um, certain amounts of it, because the singers were pretty close to the microphone, almost in a conventional, you know, one foot, two foot, three feet away. And they, it needed a little bit of reverb. So I added some reverb to some of the some of the material. Right. And, you know, when when they're singing and when they're not singing, I would just back it down a little hmm. bit. Interesting. Because the, the instruments in the room are ambient enough. Sure. Yeah. So did do you find that um did you ever find any situations where, you know, you would say, Oh, I'm I need to tweak this uh guitar amp or bass amp and they would kind of push back a little like, Well man, I don't know, that's kind of my sound. Uh never. <laughs> they they knew they knew that what we were doing was so unconventional that they were just going with the flow. Right. I, you know, they, and they would hear it. You know, see, the beauty is, is that everyone's hearing the same thing. We don't have five musicians all hearing their own mixes. Sure. What the hell? What record are we listening to? Right. <laughs> you know, the bass player's got his mix, the drummer's got his mix, the singer's got some whacked out mix where he doesn't even have the <laughs> keyboards in there. You know, I mean... How do you make a record that way if nobody's right. hearing what everyone is ultimately going to hear? There's a bit of psychology that goes to it, too, because it's almost like they're ha they have to face what they actually sound like in a room. <laughs> That's right. And they liked it. Right. You know, that was a thing that I kept coming back to is like they're embracing this thing. And that's what's making this thing so impressive hmm. is you know, it'd be one thing if I brought a band in and set them up around a mic and they all went, well, that's, I guess that's kind of cool, but, you know, that's not us. Right. That's not our sound. That's not the way our records sound. Right. And we don't want to sound like that. We don't want anybody to hear that. Right. That's not what we do. But none of them did that. Interesting. Everybody came in and said, we think we can make this thing work. Let me go turn the reverb down or the delay up a little bit on this guitar. Uh, how about if I use a foot switch during my solo where I can make the delay a little louder? Can we do that? I go, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And then we'd do a take. They'd come in and they'd listen to it and go, eh, maybe, maybe too much delay. Let me go back and turn that down a little bit. You know, and after four, five, six takes, man, we get it. Man, you know? that's great. It's such a cool idea. Because the band's mixing, the band is literally mixing their record on the spot. Right. And there's some agreement. The, the singer might go, oh, I don't know, I like the delay. Right. Okay, well, we'll leave it then. Hmm. You know, it's that kind of thing. They're talking to each other. It's a conversation in the room. They're listening to each other. They're responding to each other. You know, like all those great Motown records. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or the Wrecking Crew. You ever see sure. pictures of the Wrecking oh, Crew? Yeah. They're all crammed into this little room. No one's got headphones on. Some of them do. But, you know, it's just 
people making music together. As I hear you talk about this, I'm thinking about sort of the opposite scenario. So I imagine how many bands have been, you know, they get their record deal and their label, of course, controls the whole process and says, well, you're going to work with these songwriters and these producers and these engineers and you're going to do this and this and this. And then they make their record and it ends up being so overproduced and so, you know, it hardly even sounds like them anymore, right? It, it's almost unrecognizable. Yeah. Um, and it hardly sounds even real, you know? It's drum samples everywhere, it's synth bass, and they don't have a synth bass player, it's just a real bass player. You know what I mean? It's like all these things have been changed and tweaked, and, and it makes you wonder, like, are they really okay with that? You know what I mean? Do they hear it and they think, oh, yeah, that's what we sound like? Well, typically, some of them are and some of them are not. Right. You know, there are, you know, in bands, there is this chemistry and there's the power players. There's the the ones that have a little bit more say. It's usually the songwriter and or the singer. Sure. Um, and they're the ones that maybe have been responsible for picking the producer because he made this awesome record by this other band that he loves, but the drummer has never heard of him before. Right. You know, and those records get made and they go down a path that you're right is unrecognizable by maybe other members of the band when the thing is all done. And now they got to go out and play that live (laughs) rather than whatever they've been doing live has been captured. And again, you know, like you were saying earlier, there's different ways of making records. Sure. And, you know, there's no rules and I don't think there should be rules. And I'm not saying that, that, that this is an, you know, this is any kind of answer to anything. Right. Uh, I would suggest for bands that can do it, they should do this kind of one miking technique maybe a couple of times to appreciate their own talents. Right. And to really be able to hear and learn from the experience of of making a recording that way. Right. You know? So I, th- I, th- I think that there's some benefits in that. And I think engineers should also t- try it because, you know, as an engineer, I've learned a lot too. Sure. You know? Yeah. Well, and you've learned, I'm sure one of the big things that you've learned is how, like, like you were saying, most of your tweaks were musical tweaks. They weren't techie tweaks. You know, they were, right. hey, let's move this amp a little bit. Let's tweak the amp a little bit. Let's maybe, you know, maybe use a different guitar. That one's poking out a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And you were thinking about it from the standpoint of how does this sound in the room? You know, not necessarily how much it, you know, uh, oh, well, that's not going to fit later in the mix. It's like, this is the mix. <laughs> like, this is the, yeah. we're, I'm here, I'm standing in the mix right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it's, it's fascinating just that, you know, I've found over the years that almost any problem I've had with the sound, um, you know, if I'm struggling to get a certain snare drum to sound good or something, I've found that 90% of the time it's the source. You know what I mean? It's not. It, mm-hmm. it's like if you're using an SM57, like, can you really blame that? You know what I mean? It's like, how many records right. has that sounded perfectly <laughs> fine on? Yeah. You, know, you, can't, right. you can't blame that at that point. Like, even if you just have an SM57 into a stock interface, it's like, it's going to be fine. Like, the problem isn't that, you know? Uh, yeah. That, I mean, that is the, that is the dilemma of the newbie recording engineer is that, they're pretty much recording shitty bands. <laughs> right. And and they don't understand. They go, man, I'm using all the same microphones, you know, Lily White used on right. this, so-and-so, you know. And um, 
why does that why do the drums sounds bad you know i must not be good enough i'm i'm there's something i'm just not doing right and let me try this and let me try that and they're eating up you know hours and hours of studio time uh putting different microphones on um on the kick drum and trying all these i see pictures now like like on Facebook of these guys uh, drum miking where they have like 18 microphones on the drums right. and five microphones on the kick drum and four microphones on the snare drums. Like what the hell is going on in there? Right? <laughs> Can no one make a decision? Right. And I think for me, it was, I don't know, 10 years later when a real professional studio drummer came in and tuned his drums and started playing, I realized that it wasn't me. <laughs> right. No, I had I've had the same experience. It was yeah. actually the drummer. <laughs> right. The drummer and his drums and how he played. That's why those records sounded shitty. <laughs> no, I've had the same experience. I've told the story on the podcast. The first time I hired a like an actual professional session drummer. I immediately was like, man, I killed the drum sounds today. They sound amazing. <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh -huh. but I was using the same stuff I always used. I, I, you know what I mean? I wasn't doing any wacky mic techniques. I, it was just the normal thing, but he was so good and so balanced. And the tone that he pulled out of the drums was just undeniably better yep. than other bands. And immediately... And the same thing would happen to you with anything. You know, when you hear a bass player that really plays with the drummer. Yeah. When you when you hear a guitar player that really knows how to control their dynamics and their tone and 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 when they play and how strong they play and it's staggeringly different. You know what I mean? It's Yeah, and singers too, you know. Right. You know, how many times have you had a singer come in and you go, oh, that's the wrong mic. Right. And you put up another mic and you go, hmm, that mic work, should work. Right. Uh, let me try this one. And you just never get there. Right. And then you have a guy that comes in who really can sing and it doesn't matter what flipping mic you put up. Yeah, they all sound amazing. <laughs> right. Yes. Like you're just like an awe. Right. <laughs> guy singing into a RE20 and it just sounds amazing. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it's, yeah. it's frustrating for us because, you know, we are, as engineers, we want to get the best sounding products we can. And, you know, we want to, we want to have records that sound as good as the big records. Right. Right. Of and, course. you know, that's natural. We all want that, but it's hard for us. And you can't obviously say that's the pro, you know, that, that can't be your, your reasoning to the client. Like, why doesn't my vocal sound good? You can't just be like, well, cause you suck, you know, like <laughs> you can't, you know, you can't just say that, you know, you got to try to do your best with what you're given. Yep. Um, yep. you know, that's the job. And, but there is a certain point when, you know, engineer to engineer, you're thinking, man, they really just they're just not that good or, you know, and, and it's hard. It's a hard scenario because engineering is problem solving. And right. every time a band walks in, in the room, it's just one problem after another. And it's just a matter of, it's just, it's just a matter of how you manage all these problems until you show up for mastering. And then, you know, you, you hand those the rest of the problems, <laughs> whatever's left to this poor guy. Right. <laughs> So yeah. what uh, if you had to give one piece of advice to uh, engineers out there, young engineers, maybe people listening to the podcast, you know, about maybe what you've learned through this whole process or just some sort of big, you know, piece of advice for them? What would you what would it be? Um, I would say focus on what's important 
And I can absolutely assure you it's not the kick drum. <laughs> you know, I think that the singer in the song is ultimately going to be the, the, the make or break moment for the recording. You know, a great song and a great singer can power the project through the rough times. But if you got somebody who's not singing well or the song is just lousy, it's a lot harder to get that record done. Right. So you got to really pick great material and you got to work with, you know, people that know what they're doing. Now, you know, there there are aesthetics to art that are undefinable. Sure. Like, would I say Jello Biafra is a great singer? Of course not. But what he brought to the table was something that required me to get out of the way of. Sure. So sometimes, you know, a piece of advice would be, you know, get out of the way. Right. Allow these artists to be who they are. It's not your job to interfere with it. Right. And, you know, capture what it is they're doing and then and then go from there. But don't come in with a lot of uh, preconceived ideas or because you've got some new plug-in, you just absolutely <laughs> are going to have to use it. Right. <laughs> you know, serve the singer, serve the song, and you'll be fine. Well, I think that might be the quote of the hour and a good place for us to stop today. John, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk with us today on the podcast. And we hope to have you back another time soon. Well, thank you, Kendall. It was fun. And uh, thank you for the invite. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Recording Lounge podcast. For more information on John and his engineering escapades, you can check out johncunaberti.com. That's J-O-H-N-C-U-N-I-B-E-R-T-I.com. And you can also find him on Facebook, and you can look for the One Mic Project, which is just O-N-E-M-I-C all one word, and you can find that on YouTube as well and see all of the awesome recordings that they did in this really, really cool experiment slash project slash engineering wonder. <laughs> so anyway, thanks again, John, for being on the show. And as always, guys, check out recordingloungepodcast.com for all of your recording lounge needs. You can send me an email at the contact form or email me at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, show suggestions, interview guest suggestions and requests, etc. Um, guys, make sure you also check out the PayPal and Patreon pages. You can go to recordingloungepodcast.com and click support RL to learn more about how to support this podcast. Thanks to all the people that have supported the podcast with your donations and pledges on Patreon. It really helps to offset the cost of hosting the podcast and all the bandwidth, etc. So anyway, guys, I will talk to you guys very soon. We've got some good shows coming up. Well, that's it, guys. Uh, this song is called Payday by San Geronimo. So enjoy your week, and I'll talk to you guys next time. If you go down the rock wall, ask them why they segregate. No matter where you flush or whom in which you crush, it ain't for them to regulate. But I'm getting so damn tired. Waiting on payday My cash is gone fast I hope it's gonna last I'm tired of living day to day 